If you have a Bible for one last time, we're going to open up the 2 Corinthians, and tonight we're going to look at chapter 13, being the last chapter, and I think we're going to have a good time uh, in God's Word. Very practical, very simple message, a very simple lesson, uh, nothing too complicated. We should be uh, able to receive very easily, uh, and I, I hope very uh, eagerly, what God has to say to us tonight. So coming off of chapter 12, we've heard Paul make it clear he is very passionate for the lost and unconcerned. He has not given up on the lost and unconcerned. Many of the Corinthians had turned away from him, from God. Many had fallen away and had embraced false gospels and false doctrines. And much of the work that Paul had spent 18 months building and fostering in many years since that time he spent at Corinth, uh, much of what he had built and fostered was being undone actively by people that had dissented and people that had fallen away and by uh, worker, people that were, that were up to no good and serving uh, in the church for the wrong reasons. So Paul pours his heart out in chapter 12 and says, yes, you've turned away. Yes, you've sinned. Yes, I am, uh, I am completely beside myself at what, why you would do this and how you would, do that, you would do this. But he reiterates his commitment to them, which may be surprising to you. He, he doesn't scold them and say, I'm done with you. He, he, he reiterates and he doubles down on his commitment to them. He remarks that he would gladly spend the rest of his life. He would gladly pour out the rest of his life for their good, for their upbuilding, uh, and he, will, he was not at all regretting the work that he had done on their behalf. So he taught us that he saw them as a parent sees a child. He saw them as dependent on him, and, and he doesn't say this arrogantly, but he says it humbly. He understands that his position of privilege, his position, his opportunity uh, uh, over them as a minister and as, their, as a pastor of some sorts, he believed that was one that God had given him, and he held that position very graciously. So he assures them that when he comes again, he will be humble. He will be mournful. He's brokenhearted that they'd fallen into sin. And he promises that he would be compassionate with them. So as we move into chapter 13, the conversation is going to shift. Uh, the tone is going to take a little bit of a more stern and a more frank direction. Uh, this is why each and every chapter of the Bible must all, must all be heard and read and studied in their context because it's easy to pull a chapter out of the book and not regard what comes after it, what comes before it, and we lose something that is, is very essential to the text. It's good to study these books sequentially. That's why we start in chapter 1 and we go all the way to the end. We don't like to jump around, although you can be blessed doing that, and that's a fine way to read the Bible. If you want to get the most out of the Bible, read it in order. Read the books and, and as they come in order, especially containing to each book from chapter 1 to chapter 13 or whatever the last one is, there's a cohesive message that is appreciated fully when we read it together and study them um, in sequence. So we want to fully appreciate and understand God's Word. Uh, and, and the Bible talks about knowing the whole counsel of God's Word. And the only way you know the whole counsel is if you study it all together in uh, and, and, and that sense of order. So remember back to how John, John the disciple, John the apostle, remember how he described God's Word and in extension how he described Jesus. John said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not all grace, no truth, not all truth and no grace, but full of grace and truth. 
I don't think you'll find a more, uh, a more gracious chapter than chapter 12, or especially the verses that we studied last week, verses 11 through 21. Paul is full of grace. He expresses his, his mercy toward the backslidden Corinthians. But now in chapter 13, right on the heels of that, Paul is going to confront them in their sin and hold them to the fire and tell them the truth about remaining in sin and also about finding deliverance from sin. So we see that Paul followed that model that was set for us by Jesus that God's word reveals to us that God comes to us in grace and truth. He doesn't leave one or the other out. So he did this with masterclass approach, rivaled only in the scripture by Jesus himself. I think the best example of how Jesus kind of juggled this grace and truth, that, you know, which you know, how, do you give people more grace or more truth, or how do you do both? I think the best example in Jesus' ministry is the story that we often call, uh, that we often refer to as the woman at the well, when he met with the woman at the well. Jesus tells the disciples that he has to go to Samaria, which is a place that no Jew would ever go unless they were drugged there unwillingly. Jesus says, I've got to go to Samaria, and, and, and they don't want to go with him. And he can tell they don't want to go with him because that's not where a place where Jews would want to go. Uh, and, and the way Israel was set up at the time, Samaria was kind of right in the middle of the nation. Galilee was up north. Samaria was in the center of the nation. And Judea was down south. So Jesus says, hey guys, we're going from, Samar- from Galilee to Jerusalem, but I'm not going to go the long way around. I'm not going to cross the Jordan River and go down that way. I'm going straight through Samaria. And the disciples say, well, we'll just go somewhere else for a little while. We'll go get some lunch and we'll meet you back at the river. So Jesus goes to Samaria and, and, and he finds a well there that was that was very trafficked and a lot of people frequented that well throughout the day. And, and there were certain kinds of people that hung around the well, let's, let's just say for less than moralistic reasons. Uh, there would be people that would t- frequent the well hoping to maybe attract the, the, the attention of, of a stranger, whether it be a man looking for a woman, a woman looking for a man. So on this occasion, uh, there's a woman at the well, and, and Jesus approaches her. Now, this woman was very used to being approached by men at this well. She knew why men came there, and, and men knew why she came there. But Jesus didn't approach her for those sorts of reasons. Obviously, Jesus had something else on his mind. He knew what she was used to being approached for. He knew what she had been a a part of in her lifestyle, what she was immersed in. And Jesus knew she needed something better than that, something that she hadn't found through those other lifestyles. So Jesus comes to this woman in John 4, and he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Now, he may have been talking about the literal well. He also could be referring to the life lifestyle that she had been given herself to, this dead-end lifestyle that she was caught up in seemingly. He says, everyone who drinks of that well, you'll get thirsty again, and you'll never find that quench that you're looking for. You'll never get that satisfaction that you're looking for. You're always going to feel like you're a little bit short or a whole lot short. You're always going to need just a little more to drink, thinking that's going to quench your thirst. But he says, that never works, does it? Everyone who drinks of this well will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him or her will never be thirsty again, not because you won't ever drink it again, but because I'm going to put inside of you a spring, a wellspring, a fountain of life, and you're going to constantly be nourished and be restored by the power of God. 
Now, that's not what this woman expected to hear as she frequented the well on this occasion. He promises her that anyone that drinks of the gift that he had to offer would be fulfilled and satisfied in a spiritual way. And as he's saying this, and as she recognizes he's a prophet, she can taste the grace that God is putting in front of her. Yet Jesus knows that there's an elephant in the room. And she knows there's an elephant in the room. And she maybe probably wasn't expecting him to be able to read her mind and see her heart. But Jesus wasn't about to let that be unaddressed. So the woman says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus says, well, first, you should go and call your husband and come here. And, and the story goes that she says, I don't have a husband. He says, yeah, you're right to say you don't have a husband. You've been married quite a few times and you're living with someone who isn't your husband. So Jesus went to the sin in her heart. He addressed the problem in her heart, the thing that continually caused her to drift away from where she should be, the thing that was, that was constantly pulling her uh, and dragging her down, this sin in her life. And whether she was in this lifestyle because she didn't think she could do any better, we don't know why she was in the place she was. Regardless, she was not where she needed to be. So Jesus offers her grace, but he also confronts her with truth. So there's a balance. There's a balance that Jesus modeled, that Paul modeled, that we must also make sure that we're following suit. And it's always a very delicate balance that, that we must uh, handle. Colossians 4 says that we must always be gracious in our speech, seasoned with salt, seasoned with truth, so that you may know how to answer any given person you converse with. So, We've heard Paul pour out his grace and pour out God's grace. Now we're going to hear him season that plate with salt, with truth, with conviction. And that's chapter 13. Let's read the first four verses. Follow along with me, if you will. This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. So Paul's not just going to address them one-on-one. -on -one. He's bringing some people with him. He's bringing Timothy with him. He's bringing Luke with him or some of his, uh, his companions. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now I'm being absent. I write to those who have sinned before and do all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Now he's not saying he's going to kill them. You know, we hear that word spare and we think, well, what does that mean? He's just saying, hey, I'm going to address the sin, and I'm going to confront those of you that continually resist the grace of God that I've poured out, that God has poured out for you. Since you seek of proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty or powerful in you. He says, hey, you want to see the power of God work in your life? Well, this is how you'll see it come. This is how you'll see it pour out, by responding to this conviction and by responding to this invitation. To repent. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So I want to break this down. Paul's approach here, first we see that this has been an ongoing effort. This is going to be the third time, the third time that he's visited them, and he's referred to his previous visits 
in this book, he referred to one as a tearful visit, as a visit that was just very painful emotionally and spiritually. He was brokenhearted as what he found them in, and they refused to admit that they had fallen away. This, this, this reference of two or three witnesses, this is something that goes back way to Deuteronomy, um, where God was giving Moses and Israel the basics for governing the land, and he talked about the importance of having witnesses, and, and so people just couldn't lie about what they saw or what they experienced and, and use that to turn somebody in or you know, bring somebody down. But Jesus brought this into how the church should operate in the Gospels. And I'd like for you to put a bookmark here in Corinthians and turn back with me to Matthew 18 in a passage you've probably heard before, but maybe you've never really given it a lot of thought um, as to what, what the message is. So uh, find your place in Matthew 18. I think this is an important text that we should know about as Christians. We've probably heard it referenced a lot, heard people leverage it a lot, or you know, refer to it here or there. Uh, I want to talk about this because this really directly refer, relates to what Paul is talking about here in terms of confronting people in their sin and confronting people who are refusing to uh, repent. So Matthew 18, uh, this is Jesus talking to uh, the disciples, teaching them how they should function as the church in the future. And we're going to read verses 15 through 18 specifically. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother or restored your brother. But if he will not hear you, Take with you one or two uh, witnesses, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Now, you notice that's the same thing that Paul quotes in Corinthians. Now, they're both quoting Deuteronomy, where, where this comes from originally. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen, or really this Gentile, and a tax collector. And we'll stop. We'll stop there. So I want to make sure we know what this says and what it doesn't say. So Paul didn't just put people on blast when they sinned. So when he says, hey, I'm going to come and I'm going to deal with this sin, I'm going to address you guys one-on-one or two, you know, two or three with a group, he's not saying I'm going to put you on blast. He's not saying I'm going to tell the whole world what you've done and make, make a fool of you or make, make an embarrassment of you. He says, hey, I want you guys to get this right, and I've got to leverage my position in the right and biblical way. And he's doing it in a respectful and gracious way at the same time. Apparently, he'd already made multiple attempts at doing this. He's already went one-on-one -on -one with these people, and they have not at all, you know, budged. So now he's going to be a little more serious and a little more stern. But I want to make sure we, we distinguish between what this isn't and what this is. This is not gossip-driven confrontation. And by that I mean when people say, well, have you heard what so-and-so is doing? I mean, this isn't some sort of, well, I heard they're doing this. I heard they're involved in that. I heard this. I heard this. I heard this. And it becomes this kind of ground-swelling, you know, us-against-them attitude. And it really isolates the people that may, be very, may very well be in sin, but it's creating a scenario where they're going to feel as if it's a very hostile environment and they're going to feel as if that in any effort to, to, to confront them is not good at all. So this isn't gossip-driven. This is gospel-driven. This isn't grounds to rough somebody up verbally about their sin. This is a serious step-by-step -step process that comes from a deep concern for people. So in this instance, it's where church leaders, 
church leaders uh, can agree with each other that something needs to be addressed, something that uh, someone that's hurt, being hurt by their sin, being drugged down by their sin, needs to be needs needs an intervention, and the church has an obligation to address it. So, what is this business? Tell it to the church. Well, let me tell you what it isn't. It isn't a mandate to drag someone in front of the congregation and, and all but stone them like Israel did Achan in the Old Testament. That's not what this is. Tell it to the church isn't, oh, you know, expose them and make someone feel like they're an ant amidst a group of people. That's not what that's saying. Tell it to the church is an idea that, hey, this person has refused to respond to God's word, refuses to admit that they're living in sin, and rather than continually allowing them to kind of get entrenched in this denial, they're going to be dismissed from their role in the church. Again, this is not with them in the middle of the group being, you know, with pitchforks and torches. This is without them present, addressing that, hey, we've got someone, we've got some people that they're just not cooperating, they're not wanting to follow God's word. So we've already told them, hey, until they can get get through this and, and, and admit that they need help with this, we are dismissing them from church membership. The leaders of the church have handled it privately and have made it known to the person that this is, this is hurting them, so they're losing their privilege as a member. Now, this is rarely practiced because it's so complicated and it's so nuanced, and, and, it, and when it is practiced, it's always taken, I think, in a wrong direction. Again, there's nothing in here about exposing someone or humiliating someone. That's not the goal. Because what does verse 17 say? After they've been dismissed, you let him be to you like a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, let me ask you this. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Well, the Bible says that he was a friend of Gentiles. And tax collectors. Now, that kind of messes up the narrative that we want to use this text for. But isn't that what the Bible says? And isn't that what the Pharisees got angry at Jesus? Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees grumbled. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The worst thing you could do as a Jew in your relationship with God is sit down at the table with someone that they deemed to be a sinner. Remember when Peter was called to go to Cornelius' house? And what was Peter's response? God, I've never sat down with a Gentile. I've never been in a Gentile's house. That's how good of a Jew I am. I've never had dinner with a heathen. And Jesus says, well, you better learn how to. Peter said, whoa, I can't do it. I can't do it. And then he has a dream, right, where the, the animals that are unclean all get let out from the, the quilt. And, and Jesus says, hey, nothing's unclean anymore. you got to go to Cornelius, and you got to tell him that there's a God that wants to save him. Now, 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 that's a separate story. That's a separate scenario. But the point of it is, when it says treat them like a heathen or tax collector, that doesn't mean stone them and say, I don't want anything to do with you. That means you understand the person needs to be saved. And how did Jesus treat people that needed to be saved? He was always looking for a way to reach them and love them. He didn't, he didn't lie to them and tell them that they were fine. Jesus, at one occasion, had dinner with Matthew and his friends, and he sat there and said, these guys are sick. And they didn't say, oh, that offends us. He was honest about it. 
But notice, Jesus was able to juggle grace and truth, and he was able to sit down with Matthew and his friends, knowing that they were in sin, and yet they knew, hey, he doesn't approve of our sin. He doesn't approve of our sinfulness. He just called us sick. But he's never made us feel unwelcome. So you and I struggle balancing that. You and I struggle what's too far and what's not far enough. And that's always a struggle we're going to have. But it's a problem that we can't just say, well, that's too hard. I don't want to deal with it. We've got to get our hands on this. As Paul has taught us in the church, when there is sin that is persisting, you must address it and you must be firm about it, but also gracious about it. So Paul wasn't just going about this to blast people. He wasn't going about this to hurt people. He was going about this because he wanted to see people respond to the grace of God. Now, let me just say this. This was his third time. That tells, you, that tells us this, that Paul wasn't just acting from the hip. He wasn't just shooting from, from his lips without thinking twice. He was very, very in prayer about this and very careful with this. He did not treat people who were in sin as if they were not also people that God loved. So he was very careful in addressing these things. He didn't just fly off the handle and say, well, that's wrong. We've got to get rid of these people. He was very careful. He was very nuanced. Again, he spent years planning for, hey, how can I respond to this? So my point is, when we're dealing with this kind of stuff, we are on holy ground. So we can't be hastily, we can't be flippant, we can't be aggressive. We've got to be delicate, knowing that in the balance of all this are people who need the Lord. So while we cannot let them know that their sin is okay, we also cannot treat them in such a way that makes them feel like God does not care and cannot help them. It, that means it's going to take some work, doesn't it? It's easy to be on the extremes. And that's why there's two, there's two extremes in the church. The extreme that says, let's call out every sin and make people scared to walk in the building that are in sin. There's that extreme. And that makes us feel good that if people us people that are righteous and living for the Lord, we feel safer when we're not getting near sin. But then there's the extreme that just says, well, open the floodgates and let's not talk about sin. And the people on this extreme worry about that extreme and vice versa. But I don't think either extreme is in the right. It's grace and truth. It's caring about people, but also warning people. And if that feels messy to you and complicated to you, then maybe you haven't read the Gospels enough because Jesus was willing to roll his sleeves up and get in the mess. And let me just say this, Jesus never left people in the mess. He always got them out. But to get them out of the mess, you gotta wade into it. So yes, it takes some prayer and some hard, hard, hard work. Now flip back over to 2 Corinthians and we're gonna talk more about that About that restoration. Because the goal through all this is restoration. The goal, why is Paul writing this? He wants to see them restored. And he says to them, you're looking for the proof of Christ in verse 3. You're looking for the proof of Christ speaking to me who is not weak towards you but mighty in you. As in, hey, God doesn't want you, God is not speaking to you to, to allow you to remain in his weakness. He accepts you in your weakness, yes, but he is not going to let you stay there. He was crucified in weakness, as in he was crucified in our sin, yet he rose again in the power of God. So let's talk about this, about the nature of salvation. 
Our weaknesses don't disqualify us. They make us prime candidates to experience the power of Christ. So let's make it very clear. If you are in sin, if you are struggling, if you are weak in the flesh, you are weak in your mind and you're struggling as you're following the Lord or you've not been following the Lord, your weakness don't disqualify you. It makes you a prime candidate to be restored by the power of God. But may it be known... While the power of Christ accepts us in our weaknesses and our sins, he will not leave us in our weaknesses and our sins. He accepts us, but he will not leave us. He cannot. That's against every aspect of his nature. So let's say it this way. Jesus accepts us as we are. He will be patient with us as we grow, but he will never accept that our sin is permanent and he persistently reminds us of his power. And this is the tension the church exists in. We accept as you are, we are patient as you grow, but we will never accept that your sin has to be permanent and we are always going to remind you and shake you of the power of God. Again, there are extremes that go in either direction. But I choose to wade into the complicatedness of it all. Jesus finds us in our sin. He comes to us in our sin. He carries us in our sin. But he will not leave us that way. If you want to know why he won't quit aggravating you, why he won't quit shaking your foundation, why when you turn to mindsets and lifestyles that are not, that are not his best for you and his will for you, it's because the nature of the power of God cannot accept that you will not change. He does not give up on you. And he will not let you remain in that place. That's why the church, in the ministry of the church, in the messages of the church, and that's why every preacher, if, if you want to know what to look for in a preacher, it's this, that you are being called to strive and step into new life in Christ, that he is always making us aware of what shouldn't be and what can be. You shouldn't remain in that sin. You can step into new life. So as a Christian... If you want to bookmark some passages in the Bible that will help you navigate this, this transition, this, this change from old to new, I would encourage you, and we've studied these books uh, relentlessly over the years, but Romans, these chapters, Romans 6, Romans 7, and Romans 8 are your best friends about the process of stepping out of the old into the new. So I would like for you to turn with me to Romans 6. I want you to see these in your Bibles and hopefully bookmark them and highlight some passages. Again, I've preached these verses to death, so I'm not going to go into very great detail. I just want to read them while we're thinking about the power of God, the power of Christ to restore us. Uh, I want you to look at Romans 6, 5 through 11. And again, on your own free time, read the whole chapter. If you haven't already uh, committed some of these verses to memory, you should. Um, Romans 6 talks about how we are dead to sin and alive to God because of the power of Christ. Listen to what he says in verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, as in if he died for us and we see ourselves on the cross, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So if we see ourselves on the cross, we can also see ourselves and experience the resurrection. 
knowing that, that our old man, our old nature was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So what does that mean? That means we were crucified, we were buried, and that nature has been sealed away. But then the stone rolled away. In verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. So what happened after the cross? A resurrection. The body was buried, but a new life came back from the dead. And verse 8 explains it. If we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Now this is, you know, I, I, I talk to people who claim that they got saved and they heard, they heard the sinner's prayer, but they never, ever, ever were confronted with the fact that, hey, when I get saved, there's going to be something that changes me. Now, listen, if you got saved, the power of God's going to work in you to change you. But for the, 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 it, it baffles me that the gospel is, also, is often presented from only one perspective. It baffles me the gospel is often presented as, Jesus will forgive you of your sins. That's good. You know, you pray this prayer, you're good. Why have we left out the deliverance part? Why have we left out the resurrection? For years I sat in church, and it was all forgiveness, 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 but there was no message of deliverance because, hey, yeah, the cross is important. The cross is what forgives us, but I'm glad that we're not just buried and left to die. I'm glad that I'm not just forgiven and I have to sit on a shelf and hope that I don't mess up again. No, there's better news than that. We're forgiven, but we're also delivered. Don't you see how that's an important part of the equation? Don't you see how that's an essential part of the message? Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So your sin was taken care of once and for all on the cross. You, have you sinned since you got saved? It's okay. The cross took care of that too. But guess what? You don't have to stay in that rut, in that cycle, because just as he lived in the resurrection power of God, you can too. Verse 11, likewise, you also reckon yourself, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I've probably told you this before, but if you want to put a verse on a, on a, on a note card, put it in your car, put it on your bathroom mirror, wherever you get, wherever you're looking at early in the morning, this is a good thing to recite. I'm dead to sin, alive to God. I'm dead to sin, alive to God. Why or how can I be dead to sin? Because Jesus died for my sin. How can I be alive to God? Because Jesus rose again, and if he has risen, so have I. Before we turn back to Corinthians, flip over a page to Romans 8, another important passage that explains the power of God. Verse 9 says of Romans 8, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So that settles the, 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 the age-old question, you know, do you receive the Spirit of salvation? Yes, because if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. So when you get saved, you have all that you need. You have, the, have access to the entire, full, restoring power of God. From the moment that you're saved... You're forgiven of your sin. You are raised up in resurrection power. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, 
The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Yes, you're still a person. Yes, you're still a sinner. Yes, you're still a flawed, fallen creature, but you have the spirit of God in you, and he is greater than your old nature. If Christ is in you, that's a big if, but if you're saved, he's in you. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Again, what does verse 9 tell us? That if we are saved, the spirit of God is in us. And that spirit is the same spirit that raised Jesus back from the dead. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So is, is that simple enough for us? I think it is. We can make it complicated if we, want, if, we go, if we don't read the word clearly, but I think those verses make it so clear that yes, we are sinners, and yes, God accepts us as we are, but he will not leave us that way because we've been given a new nature. And that's what Paul's talking about in Corinthians, specifically chapter 13, verse 4 that we, that we read earlier. When he says, though he was crucified in weakness, he lives by the power of God. We are weak in him because he died in us and we died, we died with him. He carried our weakness, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you or towards us all, towards the church. So let me sum this up for you. The power of, of Jesus' cross disarms our old nature and the power of his resurrection delivers us into a new nature. Is that simple enough? The cross disarms the old. The resurrection delivers us into the new. That's what we mean when we talk about the resurrection power of Christ. That's what Paul is referring to here. So as a church, we don't turn away those in weakness. We don't make remaining in weakness an option either. I love, and this is, this is where we'll begin to wrap up. I love how Paul kind of begins to, to wrap this up and, and how he turns this on all of us in verse 5 of chapter 13. And we're done flipping around, so, so, so we can settle back in in Corinthians. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Literally, he's saying, examine yourself as to whether you are in the power of God and whether the power of God is in you. Test yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? And we've learned what is the, what is the, the termination of whether Christ is in us. His power is in us and his na new nature is in us. And we're being constantly brought in the direction of new life. He says, unless indeed you are disqualified. Or he means, unless you are not telling the truth. We ought to always be measuring ourselves up against God's word and what the Bible shows us as the ideal path of a Christian. We can never become complacent lest we become careless. Now, a passage from earlier in 2 Corinthians that we skipped over, and it's really just back a page in chapter 11. Uh, I want to read a couple of those verses because it refers to this complacency that we often fall into. Uh, listen to what Paul said back in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. And what is often the root 
of our drifting away, of our falling away from where we ought to be. All that you would bear with me in a little folly, indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous with you with a godly jealousy. I betrothed you to one husband, and I, that I may present you as chaste, as a chaste virgin to Christ. So Paul's using that, you know, that metaphor to talk about our purity before God. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness or by his cunning, so your minds may be corrupt from the simplicity or literally from the pure devotion that is in Christ or that is to Christ. So how does Paul describe how most of us fall away? How does Paul say, what is Paul saying is the common way that many of us drift away from God? We are deceived by the devil into turning away from sincere and pure devotion. Do you know why he's saying that we should all examine ourselves? Because it's so subtle, a drift away from God. It's so easy to drift away from God. Because all of us are being under an onslaught by the devil to be complacent and be careless and to turn away from a sincere and pure devotion. Not that we are deceived into some great sin, but that simply our devotion is targeted, and of course from there uh, comes far worse decisions and far worse actions. Think about what happened in Eden when the devil deceived Eve. The first temptation wasn't to sin against God, but rather to question our devotion to God. What did the serpent say? Has God really said that? Should you really believe what God says? Should you really be so devoted to what God says and to what he teaches you? Do you really need to be so devout with your faith? You know, Eve, you could could back away a little bit. You could let your foot off the gas a little bit. It's not going to hurt you to be a little less devoted, to be a little less literal with the word. You don't have to take it that serious. And what happens next? She questions whether she should trust God. She questions whether she should believe God. She takes away her devotion, and then she begins to look at the fruit, and it begins to to tempt her, and it begins to be attractive to her, and so forth. And then her and Adam take of the fruit, and then they fall away. Doubt leads to decisions and actions that are sinful in every way, but if you want to trace the fall back to the origin point, it starts with a decrease and devotion. Show me anybody's drift away from God. I'll show you someone who quit reading their Bible, quit attending church, quit filling their minds with positive Christian influences. I think it's good we all pause and consider where we stand with God tonight. I think it's good that we ask ourselves this question as he says, examine yourselves. How are our relationships with God? How would we grade our devotion and our fellowship with him? 13.6 says, I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. I, I, Paul says, I hope that nobody, can, it, nobody will admit or nobody will realize that they've been deceived and they've fallen away. But the reality is many people do fall away or drift away. The reality is that many of us, no matter how righteous we've been in the past, we've stumbled away. The, the devil can cause, use all sorts of circumstances to discourage us, to distract us, and deceive us. First Peter says the devil is a roaring lion seeking to devour and deceive. John the Revelator calls Satan the great deceiver of the world in Revelation 12. 
Listen, Satan is ruthless and tirelessly trying to deceive us. He'll use a bad day. He'll use an argument. He'll use anything he can to shake us down, to trip us up, and to keep us down. None of us are beyond this kind of deception or above it. You can trace everything that comes into our lives and take us take it all back to a place of deception. People that allow emotions to get control of them, anger and jealousy and bitterness and greed. Uh, we, we convince ourselves it's okay to be that way because the devil deceived us from being so devout. Addictions that wrap their, wrap their tentacles around us, the wedges that get in our relationships, all of it starts with deception. Satan deceives us and then he'll take you in his direction away from where God wants you to be. But thankfully, Jesus can restore any who have fallen away. This message is not to make anybody feel stuck. It's to remind us that our Savior will never leave us in a rut. Look at verse 7 through 10. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete or whole or restored. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. He says, guys, I'm not writing this to tear you down. I'm writing this to build you back up, to restore you. I'm reminded of Psalm 40, the promise that God can raise any of us up. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. Now, let me explain that. Have you ever been walking on the grass, and it looks like grass, but when you step onto it, all of a sudden you start sinking? That's what a bog is. A bog is ground that is basically a swamp. It's marsh, but you can't distinguish it from the dry, solid, hard clay from the boggy, mush, mushy, muddy swamp. And it's, the transition is so subtle. I mean, you're walking along and all of a sudden you go from, you know, it could be where uh, uh, water has poured onto the, you know, from, from some source onto the land. But again, you can't really tell the difference just from your eyes. And that's how deception works. We're walking along and it's just nice and gra you know, a grassy plain. And then we step into that bog. We step into that marsh and we start to sink. And that leads to worse situations, of course. That leads to sin and that leads to decisions that we regret. But it all begins by just simply drifting away from where we ought to be. It all begins by not living in the fullness of the power of God as we are able to and as we should. But thankfully, he can restore us. He can bring us out of the miry bog. He can set our foot, feet upon the rock, put a new song in our mouth, a song of praise to our God. This, this very message could be what he uses to get your attention. Every Sunday, every service, every Bible study is God's way of getting your attention. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Verse 11 through 14, and we're done. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. And the phrase there can also, be, can also be translated, aim for restoration. Aim for restoration. So what is our goal? That we would be restored. 
that we would be restored or take, brought into the full power of God. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the lo- God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We'll stick with handshakes. But uh, <laughs> all the saints greet, we, greet you. And that was their custom. So it's nothing wrong with that. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God. The communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So here's what we should, we should consider. This whole book's been about restoration. What it means to be in Christ. To be fully restored. So here's three things. I'll give you in closing. Three questions. What in me needs to be restored to or by God? I want you to think about that tonight. Examine yourself. Test yourself. What in you needs to be restored by the power of God? You have all that you need. You have everything that you need in Christ to be restored. You've been distracted. You've been deceived. God can forgive you. God can restore you. Who around you can you help restore? Back to that earlier conversation about confronting people and being gracious and being truthful. Who around you can you go and graciously and truthfully help restore to God? You have a ministry. Remember, remember chapter 5 and 6? We've been, we've, we're ministers. We're ambassadors. What in me needs to be restored? Who around me can I help restore? And here's a big one. Is there anyone that I need to be restored to through God's help? Notice in these last few verses, he, he emphasizes the fellowship and the communion of the saints, the unity and the harmony of the saints. Remember, we've talked about this. It's not just me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus and you. I'm beside you. You're beside me. We're in this together. So I can't just say I'm good with God because if I'm good with God, Jesus says if I'm good with you, if I'm good with God but not with you, then I better leave the altar and make things right with you and then come back. So what is this all about? It's all about restoration. How can I be restored? How can I help others be restored? And do I need to be restored to others? There are people that allow grudges that go back years to harbor in their heart. And the only reason they won't forgive someone and won't be restored to somebody is because the devil has convinced you that your pride's more important than the power of God. That's kind of shameful, isn't it? The whole book restoration. We've been restored. We're being restored. His body is called to be a mission, uh, be on mission for restoration. And listen, we cannot let our guard down. We've learned Satan is relentlessly trying to tear us down and deceive us. But so is Jesus in the opposite way. Satan is relentless, but Jesus is more efficient with his restoring power. So cheer up, be of good cheer, have good courage. Because yes, the devil is trying to tear us down and to break us apart and to deceive us. But Jesus is restoring us always. And we're always just a prayer of way from being restored in full. Amen and thank God for that, right? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the restoring power of Jesus. Thank you that you've never left us in our sin. You love us in our sin. You accept us in our sin. You welcome us to come to you in our sin, yet you will not leave us that way. You will not pat us on the back and say, it's okay, it's all right. You will convict us and you'll make us uncomfortable and you'll show us there's a better way. There's the power of God available to us. 
Lord, help us tonight to examine ourselves, to try ourselves, to test ourselves, and see if we be in the power of God. And if we're not, Lord, rebuke the devil and free us from his grasp because we want to be in your restoring power. Lord, use us to be a witness to our world. Restore us, help us restore others, and help us be restored to one another so that everyone may know that the church of Jesus Christ is a mission and ministry of restoration. We ask all this in your restoring power. Amen.